evening, please be seated. Joshua chapter 12 this evening. Our journey through the scriptures. At the end of chapter 11 and verse 23 we saw last week, and so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and then the land rested from war. And verse 23, what that tells us is that the uh, general, and that's a, a word we want to notice, the general uh, conquest of the land is now finished. And so the largest part of it's been done, the major cities have been taken, and uh, there are still areas that need to be mopped up, which we'll see in just another chapter or so. But the land has generally uh, been, been uh, uh, taken as, as God commanded uh, Moses and, and Joshua has fulfilled that. Now here in chapter 12 what we have is a list of the kings who were defeated by the children of Israel. First of all under Moses and then uh, second those kings that were defeated uh, under Joshua. In, in the conquest of the promised land. And so sometimes we can read the, a list like this in chapter 12, and there are a lot of lists between here and the end of the book. And to us, we look at it and we just see kings and their ancient kings, and we have some connection to the, some of these kings because God has included in His Word the record of the battle that took place for the children of Israel to conquer that king. But what we have to remember when, the, uh, we have to remember how the children of Israel would have read a list like this and what a list like this would look in our lives. To them, it was a list of God's grace and His faithfulness in their lives. How God had promised to them that He would give them the land, that He would defeat their enemies before them, and they have uh, a listing one right after another. I think it's something like 33 kings that are listed that were defeated by the children of Israel. And so one right after another, they would have, it would have sparked their memory, and they said, that's right, remember when uh, we defeated Og or Sihon or uh, some of the other different kings and it would provoke a memory within them uh, of God's faithfulness. And uh, sometimes I think after it wouldn't be a bad idea. I don't know. God can do whatever He wants by His Holy Spirit. But they've been conquering this land for some time between five and seven years. And before they get to this place, it might not be a bad idea every five or seven years to sit down and write a list of the major things that God has done in our lives, the enemies that have been defeated, the great things that have happened, and then, uh, you know, to stand up and do a little jig or something, you know, in celebration of the Lord for His faithfulness in our lives. So often, time just keeps rolling on. God, we, God gives us a great victory, and then we're moving on to the next thing, the next thing. And all of that's great because we're going to celebrate everything when we get into heaven one day. But it is nice to remember uh, how good God has been to us occasionally this side of heaven too. And so that's what this list would have been like to them as, as they reviewed it. And there, these are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. And so he begins now in verse 2 to talk about the kings that were defeated by the children of Israel under the leadership of Moses on the east side of the Jordan. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites. And they say, remember Sihon? Man, it seems like a million years ago. But remember, those are good memories, aren't they? Isn't it... I am so thankful. Sometimes people will. I got an email this week and, uh, uh, from a guy from way, way back it, that attended the church that Karen and I attended when, that we both got saved in. And uh, he, was he was inviting me on a certain thing like that. And I wrote back to him, and his name is Steve, and I just thanked him for continuing to walk with the Lord and be faithful through all these years. And, and there's something wonderful. You know, not that many people that when you're talking about 10, 20, 30 years, and you can look and say, they've, they've done it, they've walked. They've, they've walked through every bit of it with the Lord through those years. 
and they got that and then you have that kind of a history with them where you can sit down and say remember Sihon remember back in 1980 when you know or whatever it might be for you some of you weren't even well anyway but um but it, it, th- this is what it would have done to them. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Aroer, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites. And the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinnereth, uh, which is the Sea of Galilee, as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, the road to Beth Jeshemoth and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king that was defeated by Moses was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was uh, of the remnant of the giants who dwelt at Ashtaroth and uh, Edrei, and re- reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salca, and over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Mahakaphites and over half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, because you remember they wanted to have their part, uh, their inheritance to be on the eastern side uh, of, of the Jordan River. And so Moses had given that uh, to them uh, there. And these are the kings of the country uh, uh, which Joshua, so now we move on to the conquests under him, Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, uh, in the wilderness, in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Lots of ites in there, and uh, God was bigger than all of them. Here's a listing of the kings that were defeated by uh, Joshua and his leadership. The king of Jericho won, and so he begins uh, with the listing of the kings that were conquered in line with the battle, the su- in the conquest of the southern Canaan. So Jericho, the king of Jericho was one that was defeated. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of uh, Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. So let's just kind of do it like they would do. Remember Gezer? Wow, remember? Okay, so this is kind of what would be happening. Us, It's like, when's he going to get through with this? But these were great great victories. The king of Debir won, the king of Gader won, the king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makadah won, the king of Bethel won. And then now he moves to the 15 kings that were defeated in, in the northern campaign. The king of Tapua won, the king of Hefter won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lasheron won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron, Meron won, the king of Ashtaph won, the king of uh, Ta'anach won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Jachnium in Carmel won, the king of Dor in the heights of Dor won, the king of the people of Gilgal won, the king of Terza won, all the kings, 31 under Joshua, uh, plus the two that um, were given, uh, that were conquered under uh, uh, Moses. And so these kings fell. That's a lot of kings. And a lot of them united together in confederations to, divide the, to defeat the children of Israel. And, and they were defeated as the children of Israel simply gave God their obedience and they gave God the time that he wanted in order to conquer these kings. And as we give God our obedience... And then we give him the time that is necessary for him to bring victory to us over these different kind of 
enemies in our life are sins or strongholds or these kinds of things, then we will one day be able to sit down, and no doubt we could tonight, sit down and say, look at what time and obedience has produced. Look at the things that have been defeated and conquered, enemies in my life that have been defeated and conquered as I've just given the Lord my obedience. You know, you don't have to huff and puff and blow the house down. Sometimes, you know, we, we think that, that victorious Christian life is some kind of, you know, frantic, manic kind of thing. It really isn't. I mean, it can be that. If you're like that, God bless you. That's great. Not everybody's like that. You be who you are in the Lord. That's terrific. But it, 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 it doesn't have to be something like this and, and some frantic kind of thing. Just simple obedience walking with the Lord for a long time, and then we're all going to end up with our own list of 33 kings or areas of our life that were defeated and promises we were able to, uh, you know, appropriate in our lives that would displace then uh, these, these enemies in our lives. Now, when we get to chapter 13, verse, chapters 13 through 21, they constitute the second half of the book of of Joshua, and it really uh, it, it records the division of the promised land among the various tribes of, of Israel, and it includes a list of lots of cities and lots of rivers and lots of mountains and lots of boundaries and borders and a lot of things. And when you read through these chapters, um, you kind of look at it and say, "Am I reading some kind of a technical document or something, or uh, am I reading like?" Uh, the documents that are produced when you're purchasing a home or purchasing some kind of property or something, which are all technical, and here's the boundary line and so many feet from here and the utilities and the, all this kind of deal. And it, and it reads like that kind of a, of a document, a real estate document. And the reason that it reads like that is that's exactly what it is. God is establishing for the children of Israel, for the individual tribes, now this is the, your portion of the land that's going to be yours in the land that's been um, generally conquered by the, the entire nation of Israel. And so they would know, okay, our eastern boundary is over here on this river, the western boundary is this, the northern. So there wouldn't be any fighting among one another related to that. God was making all of that clear, no misunderstandings. They knew right where the property lines as it relates to the tribes uh, landed. And so uh, the, the, one of the great things about this is that even as we look and we see lots of lists through here, God does these interruptions in the lists where he gives us some very, very valuable insight uh, into uh, different uh, things that are happening in the, in the midst of these lists. There's a narrative, there's a history that's going on in, in the midst of it. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And I think the old King James said that he was old and well stricken in years. I, I do like the old King James in certain places. I like the verily, verily, and, and, uh, and these kind of things. So, and I like this one here. He's well stricken with age. You know, the years will beat you up. And that's what it's saying, is that the years have taken their toll on him. They've given him a good beating, and it shows. You know, so uh, uh, that's his condition, and that's what happens to all of us. And... Uh, the, you ever read the obituaries in the newspaper? I don't do it as a, as a habit. I understand that it can become a temptation as you get older, though. Uh, but sometimes you'll look through and you'll see a picture. I just look at the pictures to see if I know somebody. And uh, I guess that's how it all starts, doesn't it? So anyway, I'll look through that and all, and you'll see and say, wow, I mean, this is a person. And you can recognize, like, this is a picture from... Uh, the 1800s and uh, or something like that and and uh, you realize they've died just in the last few days but this was a picture that was taken when you know they were in their 20s or 30s or something and obviously they like the picture the family does they put it in the newspaper and uh, but he or she did, probably did not die in that condition uh, you, uh, they died well stricken in years but why not put your best foot forward in those pictures I'm not saying anything wrong with it so don't you put whatever picture you want in there but he was stricken in years and the Lord said to him you are old and well stricken in years God is not a flatterer is he now there's nothing wrong with that but there's a problem with that and here's the problem God said to Joshua, and there remains very much land, 
yet to be possessed. So there's a lot of land that still needed to be possessed. Now, we look at it and say, well, wait, didn't it just tell us back in chapter 11 that they had uh, conquered the land? Again, we, uh, I remind you that at the end of chapter 11, they had completed the general conquest of the land, the major cities and the significant portions of it. Now Joshua is older, and he isn't really in the physical condition anymore to lead these people out to war. So God is going to complete the conquest of the land by driving out the enemies by now allocating the land to the 12 different tribes who each would then be responsible to do the mop-up operation within the land that's been given to them to drive out whatever remaining uh, enemies were in their land. And so that's how God was choosing uh, to do that. And I think he was doing it in a way to really uh, develop their character also. It's interesting that when all 12 tribes fought, for the general conquest of the land. I mean, they displaced the enemies very, very readily, moved forward very nicely. We're going to see now when this breaks up and it becomes the individual responsibility of individual tribes that some tribes and some people are going to be very, very diligent to drive out the remaining enemies. More often than not, they're not going to be. So it, they were stronger when they were together as a unit. Not everyone was equal. Not every tribe was equal in terms of bravery or in terms of faithfulness to God or obedience to God. And so now the individual tribes are going to show what they're made of. And God is going to, to make a record of that. But this is how he wanted to finish the conquest uh, of the land. And so uh, he declared, this is the land which yet remains to be conquered. All the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites, also the Avites. From the south, all of the land of the Canaanites, from Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebalites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, uh, at, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Mishrifoth and all the Sidonians so this is, these are the peoples that still needed to be uh, conquered and the Lord gives this promise now to the individual tribes them I will drive out before the children of Israel only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded to you. So I'm going to be just as strong with the individual tribes. So, they, so their, their failure in the future is not because of a lack of God's power, His promises. I'm going to be as faithful to them individually as I was to you as a whole. And now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. So that's the land. They Remember the two and a half tribes wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan. So you've got nine and a half tribes left that were going to settle in the, in the actual promised land. And uh, so the land was to be divided among them. With the other half uh, tribe, uh, with, the, with the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan on the east side, as Moses the servant of the Lord had given them from Aroer, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town which is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Mediba as far as Dibon, and all the kings of Sihon, king, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the border of the children uh, of Ammon. Gilead, and, and he's describing what's been given to the two and a half tribes on the east side. So Gilead, the border of the Geshurites, the Maacathites, all, the, uh, all Mount Hermon, all Bashan as far as Salka, all the kingdoms of Og in Bashan who reigned in Ashtoreth, uh, Ashtaroth and Edrai who remained of the remnant of the giants for Moses had defeated and cast them out. And so he describes the land that was given uh, to those two and a half uh, tribes on the east side. Now, 
The, those two and a half tribes, remember when they came out of the wilderness and they, they were staging in Moab uh, to begin the conquest of the, children, uh, of the, the promised land of, of Canaan, Israel, that they looked around and they were, they were cattle, cattle people, they were ranchers. And they looked around at the land just on that side of what is modern-day Jordan, and they said, this is great cattle country. And it, and it was, and it really is. Uh, Jordan is very beautiful and very fruitful on, on that section of land that runs right alongside the Jordan River. And so they said, we're cattle people. This is cattle land. We want to stay here. We'll go in and help you defeat everyone else, but we don't want anything in the promised land. So they settle for the permissive will of God rather than the perfect will of God. And there will be complications as a result of it because it puts them uh, on the wrong side of the Jordan River. So every time Israel ultimately is attacked or invaded by their near enemies and then later on by the king of Assyria, these two and a half tribes were the first tribes to take the hit. And so uh, lesson be in the perfect will of God, not in the, in the permissive will of God. And, uh, but that, that, that's what they wanted, and that's what they were given. We're told in verse 11, or 13 rather, Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out uh, the Geshurites or the Maakathites, but the Geshurites and these folks, I can only pronounce that so many times. And uh, they dwell among the Israelites until this day. So the two and a half tribes, when they went over to conquer their land, there in, on the east side of the Jordan, they uh, failed to obey the Lord completely, and they failed to completely drive out their uh, enemies. This is going to be a repeated tendency among these tribes, and we'll talk a little bit more about it as we run into it a little further in uh, in, in the book. Only to the tribe of Levi, he had given no inheritance. No block of land was given to them. The sacrifices of the Lord God of uh, Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. So we remember the children of the, uh, the tribe of Levi. God spoke to them. Uh, Moses did. And of the twelve tribes, they were not going to receive <clears throat> a specific block of land in the promised land. And uh, God didn't want them farming. He didn't want them ranching. He didn't want them doing anything. He wanted their focus to be completely upon the tabernacle, the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. So he said, I don't want you like, you know, partway doing this thing for me and then partway running a cattle business on the side. I want you to be completely focused on on what I'm calling you to do, and so uh, I'm not going to give you one block of land. The thing that he did do with, with the Levites, as we'll see in a few chapters, is he gave them 48 different cities that were spread out throughout the land. So they had places to live and raise their families, and, and, all, and, and they had land within the land, but what God wanted them to do was He wanted them to be spread out. Didn't want them in one block up in the north or in the south or even in the middle. He wanted their spiritual influence to be spread throughout all the land, and so He gave them cities for that. Remember, the Levites were the people who were, were in that time, were the experts in the law along with the priests. And uh, so when they would go back into some region of, uh, uh, that belonged to one of the other tribes, they would then teach the Word of God in that region. And so uh, God wanted their spiritual influence kind of spread out throughout the entire land. He wanted them to be an influence for Him even among His people. So this was His way of keeping them, how we would call it in the New Testament, being salt and light. Uh, even in the nation of, of Israel itself. And so this made the, the tribe of Levi unique in that they, uh, of the twelve tribes, they did not receive uh, that kind of a block of land. And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben uh, an inheritance uh, uh, according to their families. And he describes the territory that was given uh, to the children of Reuben. The, their territory was from uh, uh, Aroer, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine and all the plain of Medeba, Heshbon, all of its 
cities that are in the plain, Dibon, uh, Bamoth, Baal, uh, Beth Baal, Meon, and then right on through, let's see, let's jump down to verse 21, all of the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian. He describes some more. Verse 22, the children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. And uh, the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben according to their families, the cities and their villages. And so do we have that map? Can we show that? That shows where these... Uh... That's not a map. That's me. So we'll get, he's going to get a map up there because not all of the Bibles have these, you know, kind of maps of what's going on. And, and it'll just lay out where these tribes ended up uh, landing. And then you can kind of see, okay, this is where Reuben landed. And then if you're like a, a geography guy to the max, you know, you can get an atlas and really tear into this. Then in verses 24... God, uh, the, the, Moses here, Joshua here, honors uh, the uh, allocation that Moses had declared would be given to the tribe of Gad and to their children, uh, to the children of Gad according to their families. Their territory was Jazer, and uh, there's the listing of all of these. Verse 28, this is the inheritance of the children of Gad according to their families, the cities and their villages. Hey, buddy. Okay, no map yet. No pressure. Dave, I love you. There's no problem here at all. These people love you too, whatever, whenever it can happen. There it is. How about that? Okay, let's see. Okay, so we see Reuben down there uh, on the right, lower right-hand corner, and so that's what they got. And then Gad got that big section right in there. And uh, now we move on to Manasseh, verse 29. And uh, Manasseh, when we talk about the half-tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh is a tribe split. There was a section, Manasseh, uh, a, a portion of the tribe of Manasseh said, yeah, we got cattle, we want to live in cattle land. And then another half said, mm-mm, we're going into the promised land. So they divided, and a half of the group ended up outside on the, on the east side of the Jordan. The other half ended up in the promised land, and that's why you see the break that occurs there. So this is still the permissive will of God, uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh. The inheritance that was given uh, to them, uh, verse uh, 29, and it lists uh, down uh, through verse 32. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. And so that was their portion. But to the tribe of Levi, he repeats again, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to uh, them. So chapter 14. These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan. So now we get to the division of the land, the allotment of the land to the nine and a half tribes that said, we want to be in Canaan. Which, and overseeing this allotment of the land were three groups of people. The first one was Eliezer the priest. And so the spiritual head of the nation, Joshua, who was kind of the government head of the nation, the son of Nun. And then also a third group that was involved in this division of the land and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Now it's important to understand here is that, and we're going to see it in the passage, is that the allotment that each of these tribes received, um, well, it's right there in verse 2. Why don't we read on? Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half, nine tribes and the half tribe. So here's the deal. The Lord, and this is really important to understand, the Lord guided the lot. The Lord determined which tribes were located in which part of the land. Joshua didn't do that, Eliezer didn't do that, the leaders among the people didn't do that. All they did was make sure that what God communicated to them was acted out. 
So, I mean, if it was, if you had a thing where maybe God was giving the whole revelation to Joshua, and then Joshua gave his tribe like this gigantic piece of land, then the other people would always wonder, wait a second, this sounds a little shifty. So you've got like the three arms of government here. You've got the, the high priest that's involved. You have the heads of the different tribes of Israel. They're all involved. God made his will known to them, and then every, nobody could, could squawk about it as, as everyone went to where God told them to, to go. And so God directed them by lot. Now, we think of lot lottery, we think of lotto, you know, it's kind of a gambling uh, thing, and uh, that's not what was happening here. Under the old covenant of the Old Testament, uh, the children of Israel used lots um, as one of the means by which they determined the will of God for their lives. God would direct them through the Umum and the, th- the Urim and the Thummim, which was a way that he directed the priests, and I won't get into all of that. But another way was through Lot. And some people believe, I think Josephus uh, indicates his belief, a Jewish historian, that how these lots were, were, were determined was that uh, in this pot over here, uh, the nine and a half tribes, uh, were, their names were put inside. And then over in this pot over here was the division of the land. And someone would take and bring both of them out and match them up. And the reason that it wasn't a uh, happen uh, chance that was going on here is that under the old covenant the children of Israel trusted God to lead the lot they trusted him to supernaturally intervene and 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 make his will known in this way as Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 16 the lot is cast onto the lap but its every decision is from the Lord and so they had different ways of casting lots maybe it was the two pot thing I I don't know maybe it was some other way but they trusted that God was leading them in this and under the old covenant he did now as Christians we don't do this okay God I put these in this pot I put this in this pot and I'm pulling these things out and we're going to direct our lives we don't determine the will of God that way under the new covenant for us we have uh, a different means of determining the will of God Uh, we have the word of God as a way to determine the will of God for our lives Um, we have prayer as a way of determining the will of God we have the Holy Spirit who can operate through spiritual gifts word of wisdom word of knowledge prophecy these uh, these kinds of things and so these are the ways that we determine the will of God in this new covenant and sometimes when you read about how they determine the will of God by the casting of lots in the Old Testament um, sometimes that can look pretty attractive especially if you're asking God for his wisdom on a particular situation and he's taking a bit of time to reveal his will and uh, type A'ers don't like that they don't like red lights the stale red lights you know five seconds here come on the whole world's waiting to hear what I've got to say. So, um, anyway, so it can be very attractive to say, wouldn't it be nice if you could just come up and do this and this and this, and then this, you had it right now. You had uh, God's will uh, determined. In some respects, it, it is attractive. There's an efficiency about it that I really, really like. The problem is, is you can cast lots and not know God. You can cast lots and not have a relationship with God. One of the things that God does in this new covenant and he's all about relationship, is by revealing his will to us, by virtue of our study of the Word of God, through prayer, through a dependence on the Holy Spirit, by doing it that way, he's nurturing relationship. All those things occur in, in ways that force us to go deeper in God, deeper in our understanding of, of him. So he, that's why in James chapter 1 he says, if you lack wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm not going to laugh at you. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm going to give it to you. But he's up to more than just giving us directions in life. He likes the relationship. And he likes what, ha- what we learn between him and us while we're waiting for him to reveal his wisdom. There are some of us in this room, I'm getting names, right now there are some of us in this room that if God revealed his will by lot we'd never pray you know who you are your face is turning red right this moment in the room just look to your left and right and see if you can see anybody 
person would never pray, never read the Bible, never, you know, depend upon the Holy Spirit. So this way forces us to deepen our relationship uh, with the Lord. And so the important thing for us to realize here is that God determined where these, these tribes ended up in the land. Now, um, so this was something that, that he did, and, and so he didn't want to give uh, too, too, too much land or, or uh, this particular place in the land to a tribe that it was too small for them or too difficult for them to conquer. He didn't want to put another tribe over here in a place where with their resources and their leadership and their numbers that this would have been too easy to conquer. He put them in just exactly uh, the, right, the right spot. And later on they're going to squawk over all of this and, and we're going to need to come back and realize, no, it's hard, it's difficult, but you're, they were right where God wanted them to be. And, uh, and so they really didn't have a beef with Joshua. They had a beef with, with God. And so the, the size of their influence, the sphere of their influence, where their influence was located, that was all determined by God. And later on they're going to say, well, well wait a second, how come you gave me this and you gave, you know, uh, the tribe of Dan that land over there? I'd like to have that sphere of influence. That happens in ministry a lot too. Or sometimes people look and they'll say, well... How come God's got me in this city and, it, and He's got me in a ministry that's only this size? And you look over and here's this big old church over here and this guy's over in that city and, and every, all this kind of thing. And you can look at it and say, how come He has the sphere of influence that He has and I don't have that sphere of influence? They're both God-given. They're both God-given. God knows what He's doing. Do you know what will cure us of that in our lives? is if God, for 48 hours, would plunk us in a place that we have no gifting, we have no strength, we have no ability to be fruitful in, and put us over in the place that where we want to be, and wow, in 48 hours we'll be uh, trembling and wanting to come back to exactly what God has called us to do individually. And so God chooses our place. He chooses our sphere uh, of influence. He is never wrong. And so the idea is let's give ourselves fully to what He's called us to do and not be worrying about, you know, what other people have, what God is doing through them. They may have capacities that we don't have. And we just look at them and say, well, just look at them. And we think when we're comparing ourselves with them, we're comparing apples with apples. We're not comparing apples with apples. In fact, we're not even comparing apples with oranges. We are comparing apples with rye bread. They're two entirely different things. So you have to be careful about this. God puts us where He wants us to be, and it would probably kill us if He put us someplace else. He knows what kind of capacity He has built uh, into our lives. And so... He's the one that determined all of this by lot. For Moses, verse 3, had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe on the other side of Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the cho children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they have uh, no part and they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in with their common fields for livestock and their property. So what this kind of solves is this. All right, we've got 12 tribes in Israel, right? The Levites don't get a section of the land. So now we're down to 11. But how come when I look up at the map, you don't have to put the map up, Dave. But how come when we look up at the map, we see 12 tribes there? How would you take one out and get an extra one? Because God took the tribe of Joseph and uh, took the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and made each of them uh, their individual tribe in, in this particular uh, situation. And so that's how he did it. Remember Jacob, when he pronounced his blessing upon Joseph, Joseph had been gone for so many years, and Jacob saw Joseph's son, and he said, I never thought to see you again my whole life. Now I'm seeing your sons. And he laid his hands on him, and he blessed him, and he said to Joseph, these two are mine. I'm taking them to myself. And it's all kind of a setup and a preparation 
before this where God knew that the Levites would become this and he would take and, and make the two sons of, of Joseph individual tribes among the twelve. And so that's how we stay at twelve. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did and they divided uh, the land. And then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal. And, and uh, Caleb, the son of uh, Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to, uh, to uh, Joshua, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And that last section of, of verse 8, that's the biographical statement concerning this man named Caleb, one of the great saints of the Old Testament. He was a man who wholly followed after the Lord his God. So Joshua's here. He's getting ready to divide the land among the twelve tribes. And Caleb walks on the scene. I just love this guy. He walks on the scene and says, wait a second. I'm all for you dividing the land. That's going to be great. Let's divide the land. But there's one piece of business we need to take care of before you start dividing the land to anyone. And he said, Moses promised me a piece of land 45 years ago. Let's go ahead and settle that. Then we'll start to divide the land among the 12 tribes. And uh, so Caleb wants to clear up some uh, unfinished business. Caleb and Joshua had a very long history with one another. And, and, and Caleb tells us a little bit about it here. Forty-five years earlier, Caleb and Joshua were two of the twelve spies that were sent out by Moses uh, at uh, Kadesh Barnea to go in and spy out the land and it, prior to going in and conquering the land. And you remember that the twelve spies came back and ten of them uh, gave a fearful report of the land and their fear was contagious until the whole uh, congregation of Israel was afraid of going in to conquer the land. And uh, Joshua and Caleb stood up, we're told in the passage, uh, the account there in Numbers chapter 14, they stood up and, and Caleb specifically told them, this land is great. This land is everything God said it would be. It's flowing with milk and honey. I mean, and sure there's some giants in there, but we'll, we'll whip those guys like nothing. I mean, it'll, it won't, it won't be difficult for us to do. And they were trying to encourage the faith of the children of Israel. And the response of the children of Israel to Caleb and Joshua was, let's kill them. They wanted to stone him to death. Now, one of the great characteristics of Caleb, and it has to be the characteristic of anybody that wants to be great for God, is he was willing to stand alone for God and for right, not just in the middle of a pagan world or a wicked and perverse generation, but to do what was right and to stand for what was right even among God's people and then run the risk of being stoned by God's people for doing right. And Caleb had the godly character that he was willing to make that kind of stand. I would venture to guess that every single one of us, sooner or later in our Christian lives, we will be put in that place. And it will test our hearts, whether it is one like Caleb, where our heart is to wholly follow the Lord, or to cave on some issue. It's wrong, but look at all the other Christians are doing it this way, and so I'll do it too. And to Caleb's credit, he looks, he looks at that kind of situation and says, no way, I'm going to make a stand uh, here for God. Let's go in and take uh, take the land. And later Moses would recount the incident prior to uh, 40 years later before they would go into take the promised land and uh, he would commend 
Caleb for his bravery 40 years earlier and he provided us with the biographical statement that, that Caleb used concerning himself which helps us explain the greatness of, of Caleb and that is that he was a man who wholly uh, followed after the Lord. Surely none of the men who came up uh, from Egypt were told from 20 years old the Lord speaking through Moses and above shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as a result of their uh, unbelief because they have not wholly followed me except Caleb, the son of uh, Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And in fact, this, this word holy to describe uh, Caleb's commitment to the Lord, it's repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament, several times right in this uh, chapter. Now, because of his commitment... The Lord had spoken uh, there in, uh, to, to Moses there in verse 9, and Moses swore to Caleb on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden as a spy shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So God gave him a promise. Forty-five years earlier, because five years have gone by in the conquest of the land here, and, and God said through Moses, Caleb, all that land that you saw, and, and you encouraged the people to go in and get, you're going to live long enough to be a part of the conquest and for your family to inherit that land. That's a promise he holds on to from God for 45 years. Now, that, that's, again, that's patience. You look at Caleb, and he's such a goer, such a doer, and, and yet he had this patience to wait on God to fulfill his promise uh, to him. Hold on to the promises that God gives you. Sometimes it takes a while. I hate 45 years and wait. I don't like those things going together, but sometimes that's the way uh, that it goes. And so God had promised through Moses to Caleb that, that he would have uh, that inheritance and the reason why. And so Caleb shows up on the scene and he says, And now, behold the Lord. He wants, he wants to bring in his receipt. He wants to cash in right now for the, the promises of God. He said, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Only he and Joshua survived an entire generation. He, so he, God has kept me alive, and then here it is, his respect for the Word of God. As he said, his faith in God's Word, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this Word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, here I am this day, 85 years old. And so he, he still has a great faith in, in God's Word. He, he believes that God, the only reason that he is still alive at 85 years old, and he is very alive at 85, um, is because he knows God has kept me alive for this very, uh, very purpose. And he declares in verse 11 that he, uh, not only should the land be given to him because it's been promised to him, but his physical qualifications, as yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then 45 years ago, so now my, is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. He says, you can put 85 candles on my cake, I'll only recognize 40. That's something. He says, I'm as strong as I was 45 years ago. And, and so he's still got this physical health that God has given to him. And he's got the faith now. I want to go in and I want to conquer the land. There are some people, they're old at 18. They're old at 25. They're old at 35. They're old at 50. They're old at 60. There's some people, they, they've done everything they're going to do very, very early in life. And you look at them, and the only question about their life, you don't look at them and say, my, what is God going to do through their life and their remaining years? None of that's going to happen. They're already settled in for the retirement. I think of Isaac. Remember Isaac? He, he sent out and get in, sent the mess in the hole. I'm about to die. He lived about a million more years. Some people are like that. I'm on my deathbed. How old are you? 24. Good health? Yeah, but I can feel, you know, I got some, the guy's going to live to 120. But he won't do anything for the kingdom of God. And, the only, and, and so they stop, the heart's beating, life is there, but, but they're not really living life. 
And the only question about their life is how many more bowls of pasta are they going to eat? How many more cars are they going to own? How many more movies are they going to see? That's the only question about their life. And then you've got a Caleb who is 85 years old, and he doesn't, don't talk to me like you talk to an 85-year-old. Talk to me like you talk to a 40-year-old that's been eating manna. (laughs) I guess it was afterwards. But manna must have been pretty good stuff, by the way, for both Joshua and, and for Caleb. So this was his attitude, and it was a very, very great attitude. And you do, you run into people who are 85 years old, and they're... 25, 30, 40 years younger than, than their uh, chronological age. And so here's his request now. Therefore, give me, verse 12, this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. Remember back 45 years, everybody's afraid of the Anakim and all of this stuff. And how they were there, and that the cities were great, and they were fortified, and everybody got afraid of it. And it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. So he comes up to Joshua, and he says, I, you know, I'm listen, you got something nice that looks over a river, and I can do a little fly fishing, and this, and he wants to just, I'm not picking on you fishermen, by the way. And, but he's not looking to retire. He comes to, he comes to Joshua, and he says, Give me the hardest part of the land. I've had faith for 45 years. I have wanted to fight an Anakin in battle for 45 years. I've been denied it. You tell me where these giants are, and you give me that land. That's where I want to go. Apparently, faith is an addicting thing. And he wants an object that's worthy of the faith that he has. He wants to be challenged still at 85 years of of age. And so he said, you tell me where they are, you give me that section of land, and by the grace of God I'll finally get a chance to drive them out as I wanted to do 45 years ago. And Joshua honored the request, and he blessed him, verse 13, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. And Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb uh, and the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now, What's interesting related to this is Hebron had quite a history uh, with the um, children of Israel. Uh, Abraham was buried there by this time. Uh, Isaac was buried there. Jacob was buried there. And it's kind of like Caleb and Joshua look at it and they say, Listen, if those three men had enough faith to live and die in the promised land on the basis of a promise from God, that we would one day possess it. He said, I want you to give me Hebron, and, and that's the land that I want to take, because I, I, I want to be, if they, if they could live on a promise, then I want to be a part of the fulfillment of that promise. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and then the land had rest from war and Hebron is in the hills about 19 miles uh, south of Jerusalem uh, we never go there on a trip to Israel because it's a little hot there right now not temperature wise but politically and safety wise now we ask ourselves here why in the world was this account account concerning Caleb you know uh, plopped right into the middle of of all of this allotments of the land And I think that the reason that God puts it here, even for the children of Israel, but certainly for us, he puts it here because he is showing them the kind of commitment that Caleb had to the Lord, one of wholly following the Lord, and he's communicating to the tribes of Israel, this is the kind of commitment that will be required in order to conquer these individual sections of land that are going to be given to you. And very sadly, many of the tribes, as we're going to see, they did not possess this same spirit or this same commitment. Uh, and, and so we're gonna, they're going to 
take the land. They're only going to conquer it so far, and they're going to be partially obedient to the Lord. And, um, and so here, in the midst of this scene where God knew they're going to be tempted to just partially conquer the land and become friends with their enemies and all, and, and then what happens when a person does that? They go in, conquer, partially conquer the land, they make friends of their enemies or sin in their life for our applications, this kind of thing. And then they begin to console themselves into saying, well, you know, I, this sin is in my life and this giant remains in my life simply because I don't have the power uh, to kick it out of, of my life life and, and defeat, defeat all of the enemies in my life and possess all of the promises of God. And what God does is he points them back and he says, you're without excuse because Caleb did it. And Caleb did it with the same resources that you had uh, to, to, to do it with. And, and so God presents to them, he presents to us this man by the name of Caleb to testify to the fact that a life of victory does exist but it requires that it be coupled with a wholehearted commitment to the commands of God and to faith in, in God's Word. Now, I'm going to close for our purposes this evening with just looking at, at some of the characteristics of Caleb before we leave him here. Number one, he was a man who wholly followed the Lord. Mo repeated multiple times, even just in this passage. And so what the passage asks us is, is that our commitment? Is that our commitment to the Lord? Where our husband, our wife, our children, um, our parents, our peers, our co-workers can look at us. I'm not trying to do a guilt gotcha. I know how to do that. But I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to learn the obvious lesson of the passage to where people could look at us and say, that is a man or a woman who wholly follows the Lord. That is how we are to walk with God. Christianity is kind of getting dumbed down a little bit today. People just kind of accept, well, you know, they're on their way to heaven and uh, they're not killing anybody. Oh, great. Uh, that's fabulous, Christ-likeness. And, we, and we're, we're getting... You know, the standard has moved away so far down from what the biblical standard is. And that is God calls us to follow him with all of our hearts to do that. Caleb was also a man who was willing to stand alone with God. And again, as I said before, not just in a pagan world or against pagans or a perverse and wicked generation, but he was willing to stand for God among God's people when God's people were wrong. And to do that, when God calls us to do that, that can be a very, very lonely and painful experience for those of you who have been through it. It's a very difficult place to be where you make the stand. All the other Christians are caving on the left and on the right and you're the zealot, the fanatic, the crazy person. What kind of a Christian is that? None of the other Christians are walking that strictly. And so all that pressure gets put on you. But yours is the life that pleases God. And there's big trouble ahead for everyone else. And you're in a place that's right, in a place where there is peace. Caleb had a great respect for the Word of God. If God said it, and even if God said it 45 years ago, and I've been waiting 45 years, God is going to prove His Word true. And, and so that's the attitude that he had toward the Word of God. There's so many people who they see the Word of God, some promise of God related to their lives. They see the enemy or the stronghold that has to fall in their life for this promise to be true. And they don't view the Word of God with faith. They do not view the giant or the fortified city in the light of the Word of God. They judge the Word of God and the light of the strength of this thing that they have uh, has a hold on their life. So they never approach it with faith and confidence in the Word of God. 
They begin to make excuses for these things continuing in their life. And Caleb didn't do that. God said it. God said he gives this power. God says he gives this land. He gives this portion. He gives this Christ-likeness. He gives these promises. He's going to do that in my life. The other thing I like about Caleb is that he was a guy who he knew God. He had an intimacy with God. The way he talks about God in this passage, this is the way that a person who knows God talks about, about God. He achieved greatness also in the kingdom of God, even though he was a Kenite. And uh, when Caleb's introduced uh, here at the, uh, at the beginning here, uh, in, in uh, verse 6 this, uh, of the account concerning him, we're told very clear that he was a Kenite. And from Genesis chapter 15, we know that the Kenites were a tribe from Canaan in Abraham's day. So Caleb came from what was once a non-Israelite family. He wasn't a natural born from the beginning in terms of his gene pool and his lineage was not an Israelite. He got grafted in somewhere along uh, the way here. And yet he became one of the most faithful servants of the Lord in his time. I think that one of the strengths of the Calvary Chapel movement is its willingness to allow anyone and everyone a chance to become what God has uh, called them to be. I think certainly as it relates to pastors, they give anyone that thinks that they have a calling on their life to pastor a church a chance to pastor a church, whether they have a seminary degree or they don't have a seminary degree. No matter what side of the tracks that they came from, no matter what their family background was, no matter any of these things that are heaped up against them where the average person or, you know, review board would look at them and say, there is no way we're turning a church over to you. And still in the Calvary Chapel movement, people have a chance without any of these kind of things, even coming from the wrong side of things in life, given a chance to prove themselves. The Kenites... And then many, many people do. Some of the most influential churches in the Calvary Chapel, I know it could be true of any, any other Bible teaching thing that we could talk about, but we're, we're part of the Calvary Chapel here. And these unbelievably influential churches for the kingdom of God, and if you knew the story behind the person that was there, not their testimony, what God knows that never makes the testimony. I mean, you'd run out the back door. And yet, in this way, Calvary Chapel is like the Lord. God gave the children of Israel. He gave the Kenites. He gave Caleb. Everybody had an equal chance at greatness in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And he took advantage of, of that opportunity. And, and any of us can become a great witness for God, whatever our background. And I like how the Lord does that. The secret of, of Caleb's life is found again in that phrase that's repeated over and over again. He wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Do you know what the New, New Testament equivalent is that, of that? It comes from the mouth of our Savior where somebody came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second commandment is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the demands of the New Testament are no less than the demands of the Old Testament. Jesus' demands of our life for a wholehearted commitment to him and his call upon our lives no less than what was demanded of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. The privilege that we have is that the land that we conquer is a greater land. The things that we fight for are greater things. For Christ to be seen in our lives, for people to come to know the Lord. These are, these are the blessings, the greater blessings that are ours than Hebron or a section of land as we love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. I think also that Caleb teaches us 
that we need to keep growing spiritually all the days of our Christian lives. I don't know about you, but I need to see men and women who are older than me still walking with God. And I need to see men and women who are older than me not only continuing to walk with God, but doing great exploits for God. I need to see that for my faith and for encouragement to me. I need to have to know that one day at this age, when I reach that age, that that can still be lived, that can still be done. And I'm thankful in my life. There are three, the three greatest mentors in my life were older men, none of whom I was able to, you know, live closely to or be close to them. They were mentors from a distance. But one of them has gone on to be with the Lord. Two of them live to this day. But they're older than me, and I see them continuing on strong for the things of the Lord, and it does great things in my heart. And what it also does in my heart is I figure that I then have a responsibility to at least try by the grace of God to then model that for the people who were younger than me and behind me and maybe not all not now looking all the way ahead to people in their 70s and 80s for encouragement, but looking to people in their 20s and 30s like me. No, looking to, in, to people in their 40s and 50s. And that's the responsibility that, that I feel. And it's that one of the things that, that, teaches, that Caleb teaches us. And I'm so thankful for those of you who do, you walk strong with the Lord. You're still doing it. You're still taking steps of, uh, of, of faith. And, and, it, and, and it, uh, it gives me hope, and I learn so much from it. And, and the Apostle Paul, again, I know we read it last week, but it's worth reading again in this context. That's the attitude that he had. I'm going to run this thing hard all the way to the end. He said, Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. And we looked at it last week in, in the context of him after walking with uh, the Lord for 30 years, serving the Lord for 25 years. He still didn't think that he had attained and he could uh, rest on his, on his lease. But here was his, his spirit and his attitude after decades of walking with the Lord. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal even this to you. He'll show you <laughs> you're wrong and that this is the attitude to have. Every single young person has a right to see an 85-year-old with a sword in his hand. They have a right to see that in the body of Christ. It's just our sword is different Ours is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, living by it, walking in faith on the basis of the Word of God and using it to move forward in God's will and calling upon their life. Caleb is a beautiful character in the Old Testament. Now, you're going to have to put a little thing in your thinker and say, okay, let's put the bookmark in here and hold that spot because now we're going to run into one failure after another and the reason that Caleb is here is going to become very very evident to us if the worship team would come forward for a moment before we uh, leave this evening I would 